My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Kevin O'Reilly. You could make a pretty convincing case that, historically, a central reason that Canada even exists in the form that it does is in order to facilitate powerful colonial institutions in extracting resources from the land in the form of furs, minerals, lumber, oil, gas, fish, and agricultural products. This function seems to have been re-emphasized and reinvigorated by the current federal government. While there is a beleaguered but still significant manufacturing sector in some parts of the country, and there is of course the pervasive service sector that is common to the rich countries of the world, across much of the country, taking resources from the land continues to be the focus of a great deal of money and effort. And across the country, despite many different forms of struggle across many years, that process remains very colonial, very harmful to the environment, and constitutive of a very unequal society. Kevin O'Reilly is an activist with a group called Alternatives North, a multi-issue social justice and environmental coalition based in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. One of the organization's areas of work, and O'Reilly's own focus, has been pushing for sound public policy when it comes to mining and other sorts of resource extraction activities. O'Reilly talks to me about their general work around mining, about their work related to the remediation of the toxic giant mine gold mine site, about their interventions in the process around the proposed Mackenzie Valley natural gas pipeline, and about some of the specific features of being an environmentalist in the far north. I spoke with him by Skype to phone from Yellowknife. My name is Kevin O'Reilly. I've lived in Yellowknife since 1985. I grew up in southern Ontario, but worked here for a variety of Aboriginal governments, NGOs, even work for the federal and territorial governments for short periods of time. And I do volunteer work with an organization called Alternatives North. It's a social justice coalition based in Yellowknife that's been around for 20 years. We have environmental organizations, women's church, organized labor, and a number of individuals that are all members. Alternatives North really got started by a few individuals who were concerned that there wasn't a broader public policy perspective being brought to bear on a number of issues in the Northwest Territories. There was someone there from the Federation of Labor. There was a couple of people with the Catholic Church. I was there as an individual with some environmental experience in terms of my education and work here in Yellowknife. And we thought that there was an opportunity for a small group to have some influence in public policy and start to do some more critical thinking about how we do mining, how we get the benefits from it, how we retain those benefits over generations, not just a quick uh, here and now sort of thing. And with a strong sense of social justice and fairness around these issues to make sure that if there are costs and trade-offs made, that those are done in a more transparent fashion and and shared uh, more broadly across society as a whole rather than impacting on particular communities or individuals and so on. So that's sort of how we got involved in some mining issues. Living in the Northwest Territories, one of the main drivers in our economy is mining. 
I think it actually accounts for about 25% of our gross domestic product. There are a number of active mines here in the Northwest Territories through history, some gold, uh, diamonds, tungsten. We've had other minerals as well. They certainly have contributed a lot to the economy, but there's also an environmental and social legacy to uh, many of these operations. We want to make sure that there's sound decision-making around those sorts of economic endeavors and that we make sure that there's a fair return to the public purse for the resources that are extracted, so fair taxes and royalties for the use and extraction of public resources. We want to make sure that the environmental footprints are kept to a small and reasonable size, given best practices and ensuring that there's proper monitoring and management and so on. We want to make sure that the people that are employed there are paid fair wages and that they have good working conditions and that there are lasting benefits from these operations, not just for the current generation, but future generations as well. So those are some of the perspective that we bring to some of these mining operations. And we think that there needs to be some public policy around regulating mining and making sure that these things are taken care of. And that at the end of the day, there's proper money set aside for reclamation and closure and that that work is done in a timely fashion and so on. That's the way in which we try to look at some of these issues. In that initial involvement, was there a specific project that you were objecting to or a particular consultation process that you were engaging with? What was the scene for that initial engagement with mining and resource extraction issues? I think it was more in the context of overall economic development policy and and what we felt was an over-reliance on mining as an economic driver. We felt that there should be perhaps a greater balance or emphasis on renewable resources, you know, something as basic as energy conservation and making uh, homes more energy efficient, particularly in smaller communities, and more of a focus on things like tourism, arts and crafts, Things that would allow people to stay in their own communities as well without having to migrate to larger centers or work shifts that are two weeks in, two weeks out that are not very helpful for family life and so on. So we felt, I think, that there was much more potential to have a more balanced economy where mining can make a useful contribution, but it can also serve as a bridge and help finance, quite frankly, other kinds of economic endeavors that are much more sustainable in the long run. We did things like alternative budgets for the government of the Northwest Territories, looking at, okay, are there opportunities to increase revenues on the revenue side? And once you have money or perhaps even more money on the revenue side, what sort of ways can you use that that promote more sustainable economic opportunities and development that better reflect the needs and aspirations of people here and allow for people to stay in their communities and help promote their culture and way of life and keep open opportunities for future generations. I'm based in Sudbury, which is also a community that's very much a mining community. And there was a piece of writing produced by someone at the university here a few years ago that was really striking to me. And it made the point that In Sudbury and in almost any town, city that you can find that is primarily dependent on mining or logging or other kinds of resource extraction, there's lots of wealth there, but 
it somehow is never experienced equally, and so resource towns always have lots of poverty. Is that something that you experience in the Northwest Territories as well? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment, and certainly, you know, I'm not a statistician, but it's my understanding that the income gap between the richest and the poorest in the Northwest Territories has actually grown while we had a phenomenal economic boom going on, particularly around diamond mining. We seem to also have some of the highest income disparities of any place in Canada in terms of very, very high income earners and people that are still living here in poverty. And that just doesn't seem quite right, that we haven't found a way to more evenly distribute the economic benefits from mining within our communities and across regions, let alone across generations. And it's been shown statistically over time that you can invest a dollar in very capital-intensive economic activities like mining, but you'll get a lot more bang for your buck in terms of employment and, quite frankly, well-being if you invest the same amount of money in basic things like education and health care and making sure that people aren't in poverty. So there has to be better ways to redistribute the wealth from mining within our communities across regions and across generations. And we just haven't found very successful ways of doing that here, certainly in the Northwest Territories. And I think that's a common issue across many mining communities. Has Alternatives North ever been involved in commenting on specific projects or providing feedback or opposing or objecting to specific projects? We have been involved at a high level in terms of some mining policy here in the Northwest Territories. Our territorial government has recently put out a mineral development strategy. They put together a rather unbalanced panel of advisors that carried out some semblance of public consultation and they put together their thoughts on what the strategy should contain and it was really quite remarkable in how unbalanced it was, uh, basically calling for public subsidies and expenditure of public funds to hire pathfinders within government, give mining companies access to private consultants to enable them to do uh, environmental impact assessment, that sort of work and promoting more mining and so on. It was uh, terribly unbalanced, particularly at a time where the territorial government is about to take over responsibility for lands and resources and regulating mining as well. It was not a very well-conceived effort, and we certainly made our views known on that. We're also involved here with the Giant Mine, which was a gold mine that operated in Yellowknife from 1948 to 1999. It uh, left a terrible environmental legacy, probably one of the most toxic and contaminated sites in Canada, if not the world. There's 237,000 tons of arsenic trioxide stored underground in mined-out areas and some purpose-built chambers. It's now a public liability, and it's going to be up to the taxpayers of this country to really pay for that. We have obtained some documents under access to information that show the total cost of this remediation plan are now at least $903 million. At the end of the day, I think it's going to be much higher than that. So this is like a billion-dollar expenditure to clean up one mine site that was allowed to go on for a number of years without much environmental regulation. At the end of the day, when the mine closed, there was $400,000 set aside as financial security. So now it's up to the taxpayers of this country to remediate this site. And we can't just go in there and clean it up. There's always going to be some level of care and maintenance required forever. 
So the government put together a plan that would basically see this arsenic frozen underground forever without really any form of independent oversight, no ongoing investment in research and development into something more permanent, and without really any plans for long-term funding or perpetual care of the site. That's been a very active initiative on our part as well to be involved in that project and getting it into an environmental assessment and then following that through. We got about $100,000 in participant funding, and what we did with that money was we hired experts in some key areas to try to influence the outcome in the public interest. One thing that we did was we hired Joan Koya to do a study for us on case studies and situations that involve perpetual care, whether they're mining or other sorts of situations like nuclear waste management. And so she looked at a number of these case studies and drew out some lessons that could be learned in terms of things like, how do you manage documents from a site forever? How would you go about setting up a funding mechanism for long-term care and maintenance of a site so that there's a safe pot of money there that can be used for a long, long time that might even be outside of the control of government. How do you communicate what's happened with the site with future generations, hundreds or thousands of years into the future so that they know what has been done at a site and that they know what may need to be done to take care of it or avoid using it or reusing it in some fashion. So there were some very interesting things that we learned from that study that made us think about the lack of planning that had really gone into the work that the government had done on Giant Mine and its proposal to basically just freeze this stuff underground forever without having proper systems in place, no long-term funding, no plans to communicate any of this with future generations and so on. And I think that that has really helped people here in the community rethink how we can approach that site and how poorly the government has actually put together the plan to try to remediate the site. We had other experts look at long-term funding options. We had the Penman Institute do some work on setting up trust funds. We did some workshops cooperatively with the local First Nation here, the Illinois Denny First Nation. We did three workshops in cooperation with them. So we worked very cooperatively with the LNIs, with the uh, municipal government, to try to work together to come up with a better way of looking after the giant mine. And I think we were very successful in bringing forward some really sound ideas, options, alternatives for what the government had put together. And I think we were very successful in convincing the review board, the independent body that was carrying out the environmental assessment of some of these ideas, and they came up with a great report in June of this year. Now we're waiting to see how the government is going to respond to it. But I think it's fair to say that through the perseverance of some individuals and myself and the knowledge and expertise that we brought from outside, that we've had a profound impact on how people think about Giant Mine and, and how we can go about better remediating the site particularly in terms of the community's needs and interests. So what can we say that we've really learned about mining regulation and legislation after having gone through that experience? Not a lot, really, because here there is not a legal requirement for a closure plan for mining, for financial security. Those are still discretionary, and there's no legally binding standards for what a closure plan should contain and how you actually go about remediating a site. It's all 
sort of negotiated on a site-specific basis. And that's just not appropriate after having this horrendous thing happen in, in our backyard here. We have advocated for bringing us up to standards in other parts of Canada and perhaps the world in terms of ensuring that we do have proper regulation and oversight of mining practices, mining exploration and operations like that here in the Northwest Territories. So I understand that another specific project that Alternatives North has been relating to has to do with natural gas? Yeah, people may recall the Berger Inquiry, the proposal for Mackenzie Valley Pipeline. This was in the mid-1970s. There is natural gas deposits in the Mackenzie Delta area, but there's no real access to bring that gas out of that region to markets down south. So in the 1970s, there was a proposal to build a large diameter natural gas pipeline up the Mackenzie Valley into Alberta. There was a minority federal government at the time, and I think the NDP, to some extent, helped push the Liberals into appointing Justice Tom Berger to hold a public inquiry into this proposal. And it was a real high watermark in terms of public participation because Justice Berger went to all of the communities here and met with people in their, their homes and community halls, had hearings, and really listened very carefully to what people were saying in the North, probably for the first time. And his recommendations were that there should be a moratorium for 10 years on such a pipeline to allow people to develop their own institutions and forms of government through land claims negotiations and so on. In any event, the project did not go ahead because the markets experienced a downturn. It was quite an intense period of time where Aboriginal rights were finally starting to be recognized. It was a very exciting time in the North. That proposal for a Mackenzie gas pipeline began to rise again in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And lo and behold, Imperial Oil and some partners, they drew this project up again and said, well, we want to build a big gas pipeline and take this stuff out of here again. So it went through a couple of different processes, one called the Joint Review Panel, which was an environmental assessment of the project that had to be done under the new Vialwit Land Claim Agreement, the Land Claims Agreements, and the implementing legislation in the Mackenzie Valley, and also a federal legislation. So it was kind of a strange body, but it was called a Joint Review Panel. They conducted quite a thorough assessment of the project and came up with a bunch of recommendations that said, you know, in order for this to make a meaningful contribution to sustainable development in the long-term interests of the North, here's the way in which this project should be done. We appeared before the Joint Review Panel. There was a parallel process being run by the National Energy Board that looked more at the economic feasibility and some of the technical sides of the project in terms of safety and engineering and some of those sorts of issues. It was kind of a strange split in some ways. We did some very useful things during that review of that project. We hired an economist who uh, prepared a large economic model that showed what the government revenues would be from the project, what the internal rates of return would be for the companies, and basically showed that there was a lot of room for governments to be taking a lot more revenues from this project. And we had some other folks look at the issue of, well, if you capture more revenues, what do you do with those revenues? What sort of options are available to try to build some longer-term 
sustainability out of the revenue from a project like that. Probably the best example is Norway has a pension fund where all the revenues from oil and gas go into a very large fund. They actually have state ownership as well, which in Canada just doesn't seem to happen anymore. But all of their revenues from oil and gas go into this big fund. It's invested there. Very little of it is actually invested inside Norway, so it prevents heating up the local economy. And they also have economic and social screens, criteria for how they invest some of the funds to make sure that they don't put it into nuclear weapons manufacturing and tobacco uh, industry and those sorts of things. But their fund now is, uh, I think, about $750 billion. And guess what? Norway actually has the highest standard of living in, in the world almost. So we think that there was a lot to be learned from Norway. So we brought forward some very interesting ideas during that review of that project, and I think we did help influence the recommendations that came forward from the review panel. Unfortunately, the government saw fit to reject most of them, but (laughs) the state would have it. Shale gas came along, and the uh, price of gas has been depressed now for a few years, and basically the project fell by the wayside and has yet to resurface again characterize for me to the extent that you can what some of the public conversation has been like around some of the bigger issues related to mining that you've dealt with? Yellowknife is a community that was largely founded on mining, at least the non-Aboriginal folks that came here. And the mining industry still holds a lot of power, a lot of power in this community, and a lot of influence over policymakers and decision makers. And I think it's fair to say that that power has not always been used or exercised in the public interest. In many cases, it's exercised in the interest of individual companies or the industry as a whole. I mentioned before how we still don't have mandatory requirements for closure plans or financial security. And those are just things that you would think, you know, after having something really terrible happen like the giant mine or We've had other mines that have closed more recently and gone into receivership and become public liabilities. The Colomac mine, the Jericho mine, which is just across the boundary in Nunavut. The taxpayers are now paying for the upkeep of that property, even though Stephen Harper cut the uh, ribbon for it a few years ago. I just don't understand why we don't have much tougher legislation when it comes to environmental protection, particularly around mining. We do have a very thorough and comprehensive integrated resource management system that's been legislated here and really arises from the land claims agreements that were negotiated. So there's land use planning provisions, environmental assessment, land and water regulation, and then environmental audit that is supposed to be the way in which this system is evaluated and improved and so on. But the current federal government has stepped outside of that process and hired its own advisors on how the system can be, they call it improved, streamlined, and so on. And it's really about weakening the limited authority that has made its way up here through these constitutionally entrenched land claims agreements to shift that power back to decision makers and ministers in Ottawa. We expect to see legislation on this to be tabled in the House in the next several weeks to claw back rights for public participation and impose timelines and limit uh, the ability to take projects to environmental assessment and so on, much like the, the sweeping changes that the federal government has made to environmental legislation in southern Canada, 
where there weren't land claims agreements, well, now that wave is coming up and it's going to sweep us as well. Tell me about how Alternatives North has approached engaging specifically with Indigenous communities in working on some of these issues. We have reached out in some instances to try to work with Aboriginal governments. And I think we've met with some common cause in some cases, particularly around the giant mine. In other cases, you know, the Aboriginal governments, most of them are actually located quite a distance from Yellowknife in in regional centres. And they are really governments in their own right. And um, uh, I think it hasn't always been an easy relationship between Aboriginal governments, environmental organisations, not that Alternatives North is strictly an environmental organisation. I think there is some appreciation for some of the work that we do and that we do try to bring new ideas to the table. But I think it's fair to say that we haven't always worked in close cooperation with Aboriginal governments. Sometimes that's possible, sometimes it's not. And sometimes we probably agree to disagree. What's your sense, thinking more generally about your organization's work, what's your sense of how that work happens differently because it's happening in the far north? We have what's called a consensus government system here. There are no political parties at the territorial level. In some ways, that's good. In some ways, it's not so good because it becomes a bit of a popularity match without much clear direction or vision from one term to the next, necessarily. Um, It's a very interesting and exciting policy environment in which we work. You know, you can go shopping here and bump into cabinet ministers and have a conversation with them. I don't think that kind of thing happens down south. So a small group of committed people have an opportunity to influence and make changes here. And, you know, Margaret Mead's uh, saying, and knowing that Aboriginal peoples here do make up a majority of the population and a lot of their values of sharing and taking care of the land have influenced public policy and even legislation, particularly land claims agreements and so on. It's a very different sort of social, legislative, governance systems in place than in in many parts of southern Canada. And I think that's what makes the North so exciting, and and it continues to evolve. Now that Northwest Territories government, our territorial government, is going to take on responsibility for um, lands and resources, and how are they going to do it? Are they going to do it any better than the federal government? And Will they uh, try to do it in a more sustainable fashion or will they just let the corporations do what they would like to do? So it's a very exciting time and a very exciting place with the opportunities, I think, to bring in some new ideas and alternatives and options. And a small group of people, I think, can have uh, some influence on on some of the outcomes. You have been listening to my interview with Kevin O'Reilly, who works in Yellowknife on mining issues with the multi-issue social justice and environmental coalition Alternatives North. To find out more about their work, go to alternativesnorth.ca. That's all one word, alternativesnorth.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.